You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. from Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. I'm Caroline Hyde. And I'm Ed Ludlow. Reunited in New York City, this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, full IPO coverage ahead. Instacart pricing tonight as Clavio prepares to go public this week as well. We'll bring you everything you need to know. And we'll get the inside look into the digital asset industry with blockchain capital as the VC firm announces it's raised $580 million for new funds. Plus, AI startup Writer. It raises $100 million to further grow its business. We'll have an exclusive conversation with the CEO. It is an IPO week. The New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq are going to be busy. Let's think about Instacart first and foremost, because it's finally set to take that plunge into public markets, pricing later today, trading tomorrow. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Katie Roof. And it's kind of interesting timing. We don't often see IPOs priced on a Monday, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of unusual. Usually they debut um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and they price the night before. Um, so big ones, yeah, not, not typically on, on pricing Monday night, but hey, why not? Why not? Officially, Maple Bear Inc. is, of course, the name overall. Oh, dear. We just have some people walking in front of the camera. Hey, it's Monday Madness. Let's it's go. Monday Madness. We're new to this particular <laughs> studio at the moment. But I'm interested in what you think, ultimately, this is a test of. This is a test of interest for tech assets at this moment. But is it a test of kind of the pivot that CEO Fujisimo has made to focus more on sort of an e-commerce bellwether player, not just, of course, delivery? Sure, yeah. I mean, the market's looking at a lot of different things here. I mean, first of all, I think it's a big test of whether uh, the market cares more about profitability or growth. Uh, there's been so much that's been said about why all these tech stocks went down in the last few years. And a lot of people are under the impression that public investors, public tech investors, care more about the rate of growth than they did. Uh, they, they cared more about the rate of growth before, and now they care about profitability. Mm. Um, so Instacart has a slowed rate of growth, but they've focused on being profitable and they've been focusing on uh, new business segments. Remind us, who's set to benefit? Who are the VCs that backed this early? 
So Sequoia backed it early, and a lot has been said, you know, that there have been VCs that invested at a $39 billion valuation and that the top of the range, Instacart, might just be $10 billion. But, you know, I'd keep in mind that Sequoia invested maybe around a dollar a share. A lot of venture firms invested early. So I would say the average cost per share was going to be meaningful for a lot of VCs. There are some venture firms that, you know, maybe invested too much um, at the pre-IPO stage. Um, actually, a lot of them are like crossover investors, like hedge funds, like D1, um, although they had invested in several rounds prior to the $39 billion valuation as well. So yeah. yeah, there are some investors that will be underwater. Katie Roof, breaking it down for us. We thank you. And look, it's not the only IPO, Ed. Yeah, yeah, look, um, I'm not making it up. It is a mad Monday. Let's keep the IPO conversation going. Marketing and data automation provider Clavio gears up for its IPO. Joining us now is the man you saw run across set. I've never met anyone as keen to break news <laughs> as Bloomberg's Ryan Gould, who's only a few weeks into his time in the Bloomberg newsroom. Clavio, interesting. Let's respectfully say of the names we waited for, it was the less talked about, but what's going to happen in the next 24 hours or so? Yeah, do you know what's interesting, I think, is that you say it was the one that was less talked about, but actually if you look on paper and think about, you know, size and profile, Instacart is very similar to Clavio. They're both, you know, pushing a $9 billion valuation. Um, Clavio has followed Instacart's lead. Just yesterday, uh, we reported that they were looking to boost the IPO price range, $2 either side of the, the bottom and top end. So they're now pushing a 27, 29 uh, price range. The SEC filing came out this morning. And I think, you know, this just confirms what we, what we learned last week, that, you know, this is still a pretty tentative time for markets. But, you know, Know, there's been a shot in the arm, so to speak, for you know companies who are perhaps thinking, all right, we've got you know a good amount sort of backed up by cornerstones, both in Instacart's and Clavio's case. And so you know, let's play it safe, let's play it smart, and they, you know, they're they're put they're pushing, they're they're going to raise they're raising their range. Give me some of the names behind Clavio, some of the existing backers, and which banks are going to help us take this company public. Yeah, so Summit Partners is 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 behind Clavio, and actually 11% of Clavio's revenue. Revenue uh, comes from from Shopify, mm -hmm. and you know I think when you start thinking about you know how does the consumer respond, you know what's the sort of retail appetite, um, it's pretty interesting to think about the insights that these these uh, these guys are, are sort of giving us across the spectrum. But I think you know I, I would caution and say that Clavio and Instacart are very different businesses. Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably good not to draw too many comparisons. Um, but you know come come tomorrow, uh, we would have had both you know Instacart price today, trading tomorrow, and then Clavio pricing tomorrow afternoon too for trading on Wednesday. There are some similarities across all the IPOs of having some cornerstone investors involved, but focus on the difference for a minute. What is a marketing and data automation provider? What, what is Clavio up to from a business model perspective? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's really getting down and down into the weeds as to, to what people want to, or what they think people are interested in, how they can better provide that those insights to those who are ultimately looking to make the most most, uh, the most money. Um, you know, I think when you think about Instacart, it's you know grocery delivery. How do you provide them with the best insights into what people are wanting at a given moment? And you know, I think even outside of the IPO, um, you know, IPO candidates, there are even quite a few companies on the on the sort of strict M&A side who are you know exploring options, so to speak, for businesses that are exposed to marketing, data, information services, insights um, across the piece. 
or making us buy the right thing at the right time. You need data for that. Wrangled, thank you very much indeed. All things IPOs. Meanwhile, coming up, we'll talk a bit more about the world of crypto too, digital assets. There's some fundraising going on, friends. Blockchain Capital general partner Spencer Bogart, his firm's just raised $580 million in some fresh funds. We'll get into it. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. fintech giant Ant is planning to unwind its investment in A&T Capital, pulling back from a $100 million fund that was actually central to its bet on digital assets. A&T Capital is losing one of its biggest financial backers. It seems unclear if actually the venture firm will continue to operate or, well, snag a new key investor. But meanwhile, bucking that particular trend and the down rounds and concerns about crypto, we've got crypto-focused blockchain capital joining us. He's actually raised funds, $580 million of them, across two new funds, we understand. One of the biggest raises for the asset class this year, not just ever, for the venture firm in its 10-year history. So pleased to welcome to the show Spencer Berger, Blockchain Capital General Partner. And are you bucking a trend or is there more interest, more LP interest in coming into crypto? Uh, there's certainly plenty of LP interest. Listen, we're, we're doing what we've always done, which is continue to double down on, on the industry that we have long-term conviction in, in the middle of a bear market. And so we're looking forward to, to deploying this capital into some fresh opportunities. Okay, so talk about the fresh opportunities. Where in the space do you think that valuations aren't elevated, that people are really proving some disruption in this moment? Sure. So we see opportunities at both the early stage and the later stage. You know, if we go back to 2020 to 2022, I'd say that the industry was mostly characterized by an influx of new large allocators that were deploying very large sums of capital to the mid and late stage segment of the market, all of those capital allocators have walked off the playing field, right? Mm -hmm. They're no longer active in the industry. 
But meanwhile, during this last kind of market cycle that we saw from 2020 to 2022, we did have a lot of early stage companies that were funded. And a few of those are growing up into that kind of mid-stage of the market. And that's what we're keeping a close eye on. Spencer, I just want to check some of the mechanics with you, because you guys already had $2 billion of assets, right? Is it that that capital had already been committed and now you're bringing new funds because you've got opportunities to write new checks? Correct. So our assets under management grew to $2 billion over the past decade that we've been doing this. So we're now deploying capital out of our sixth early stage fund and, again, our first opportunity fund. So that's doing Series B and later. Okay, um, got so it. That, that $2 billion came from the prior five funds. The, the focus, decentralized finance and gaming. Just explain how the focus of the sort of target startups changed then with this new fund. You know, it continues to cover a lot of the opportunities in the space. But I'd say early on in our first fund vintages, we're really focused on if you think from a sequencing perspective, which opportunities need to work first? And that's largely thinking about things that we broadly bucket under centralized finance. So these are these are largely on-ramps, right, and off-ramps. So it's things like Coinbase and Kraken, BitGo, Anchorage, you know, the largest exchanges and custodians. Because nothing else can really work unless you have robust, reliable on-ramps and off-ramps. Now, over time, we've blended and moved more towards the I'd characterize them maybe as more crypto-native opportunities. So these are things like decentralized infrastructure, decentralized finance, and then especially gaming has been on the horizon for the past couple of years, and we've made a select few investments in that category. I'm just interested in, aside from the investments you're making, you had an interesting turn of phrase. You said these big players who are writing big checks have walked off the field. I mean, A16Z is still out there with a massive crypto fund, I think, a Katie Hahn. I mean, are these players not writing checks at the moment? Are they not deploying the capital they raised? No, those are not the large allocators that I'm thinking of. So I think most of the crypto native investors have stayed true to the industry and continue to deploy capital. The ones that I'm thinking about are more of the, the large late stage private equity or hedge funds even that were, that were building some pockets of illiquid private investments. Um, several of them kind of came in and they said, listen, we have 0% exposure to this sector. We'd like to get it up to 10% in a 12-month period. And naturally, that, that resulted in, in clearing prices that were above and beyond our appetite. There has, though, been still this push and pull, this tension of institutional appetite when we think about more broadly a spot ETF for Bitcoin, but then at the same time nervousness from institutional money, from old guard <laughs> money because of ultimately regulation, particularly here in the US. How is that affecting startups, founders, the companies that are managing to scale at the moment? Look, I think across whether it's the large institutional allocators that are looking at the space or it's early stage startup founders, I think they're looking at the same thing, which is the actual metrics on the ground. So yes, it is a bear market. Yes, it's a so-called crypto winter in industry speak. But if you look at the numbers on the ground, we've seen stable coins process over $6 trillion of volume in the past 12 months alone. And that's accounting only for transactions in the Ethereum network. If we expanded, it'd probably be closer to nine or 10 trillion. That's just stable coins. Within DeFi, we've got $700 million of protocol revenue that's been generated by these DeFi applications. We've got $700 billion of volume going across decentralized exchanges in the past 12 months. 
All of which is to say that actually on the ground, there's a lot of healthy things happening. It is not the way that I think most people perceive it, that in these bear markets or crypto winters, that activity just disappears. So Spencer, let's talk quickly about gaming. And when I think about the use of blockchain in gaming, it's about monetizing, right? In-game customization, skins, character shares. Is it limited to that, though, the opportunities you see? <laughs> So no, it's not limited to that. I would largely characterize the opportunity in gaming as the same as most of the applications of blockchain technology, which is to put users at the center and to disintermediate some of the economics associated with it. So in the case of gaming, we have you know tens of millions of people around the world that invest maybe dozens or if not hundreds of hours a week into acquiring in-game assets. They, they spend their time, they spend their money to acquire these assets. And the promise from a lot of these blockchain startups is that Within a gaming context, they can give users actual ownership of these assets in the same way that they would in the real world or the physical world. Yeah. Spencer Bogart, Blockchain Capital. Always good to catch up and have you on the show. Time for Talking Tech. And first up, Bob Van Dyke, CEO of Process, is stepping down from his role as head of the tech investment firm. Van Dyke will remain as a consultant to the board and its parent company, Naspers, until the end of September 2024. His departure comes after a complicated shareholder structure that was highly criticized by some investors and government regulators. And Alibaba is unveiling plans to beef up its investments in Turkey. During a meeting Friday with Turkey's President Erdogan, the Chinese internet company pledged $2 billion. Ali Alibaba's already invested over $1 billion through its Turkish unit, Trendyol, Turkey's biggest e-commerce platform. Plus, investment firm KKR has agreed to buy 20% of Singapore telecommunications regional data center business for more than 800 million US. Singapore's largest telecoms provider will use the capital to bankroll an expansion across Southeast Asia. The deal also allows KKR to take up to two seats on the unit's board, further expanding its reach into the server networks that power the internet. Now, speaking of investing, artificial intelligence startup Writer is planning to invest more in its AI models. Writer's raised $100 million in a Series B round, the round valuing the company at more than $500 million. Joining us now from San Francisco, Writer's CEO and co-founder, May Habib. And May, very simple question to start, for, start with. What do you use those funds for? Oh, thanks so much, Ed. Uh, great to be here. Well, we're using the funds to further invest in our large language model technologies and our full-stack generative AI platform. Uh, enterprises are ready to move from, you know, all the talk of the promise of generative AI to real impactful applications they can put in, into production, and we're going to keep beefing up our platform to do that. Talk about real impactful revenue for you as well, because there is so much optimism, dare I say hype, around how much revenue this is going to bring in for the key public companies already. What about you? What are you seeing in terms of growth? Oh, thanks so much, Caroline. So we are 4x, you know, since the beginning of the year. So absolutely an influx of folks who, you know, have, have gotten their hands dirty working with large language models, but are kind of stuck in POC purgatory, you know, proofs of concepts that don't make it to production. And so we succeed and our customers succeed when we can really help them realize that promise, building applications that people actually use that involve, you know, their data and are secure in their environments. And their employees becoming ultimately more productive, May. This comes at 
a tough time, doesn't it? Just from the mentality of, yes, there's productivity to be had, but boy, are we worried about the dislocation, the disruption it caused for labor. In particular, I'm thinking the strikes happening over on the West Coast and here in the East Coast for writers, for actors. AI is a worry there. How much are you thinking you might end up displacing workers? Yeah, it was a big concern of a lot of the executives um, that you know took a chance on us and, and executives who have joined um, this round. Customers like Vanguard and L'Oreal and Accenture, and you know those executives aren't there promoting AI um, to displace jobs at all. We're really all in concert to help transform work, to make it more creative, more interesting, uh, and really take away the kind of cognitive manual labor um, in a lot of these workflows. So you know I would say we're quite different in that regard um, in the way that writer is use case based and workflow based people are the heart of making generative AI work may you got that access to capital but I, th I think I'm right in saying you're also in the h100 club aren't you uh, how important is it to have that compute access you, you have a cluster in the thousands I think I'm right in saying so NVIDIA is a close partner. They're a customer of Writer as well. Um, you know, we really wouldn't be where we are um, if we didn't have that partnership. And I think, you know, very importantly, a philosophy of smaller models are more agile. They're easier to manage. They're easier for our customers to put in their virtual private clouds. And, you know, bigger isn't always better. <laughs> It, that is a good point you raised. We, Caroline and I have covered a lot of these raises, foundation models that are raising increments of hundreds of millions and at high valuation. And, and do, do you worry about the sort of hype around it? Do you think that your own valuation was fair in this round in terms of your potential? Yeah, Ed, we could have done this at a billions evaluation, which I think is absolutely absurd. I think some of what is happening um, is not good for the industry. We want, you know, unhyped use cases. We want unhyped, you know, transformations, augmentations. You know, the the real use cases here are when you put people and AI together. And I think a over focus on the large language models, the size of them, the you know valuations of the companies. It's really just Extracting from actually getting value. What about the way in which they're built, they're constructed? May we come off a week where a lot of key CEOs, thought leaders were out there in Washington thinking about future regulation. How do you think about your role in forming that? Yeah, well, we already get RFPs that ask us about the EU AI Act, Caroline, and it's not even law yet. And so, you know, we are enterprise first, bottoms up. We've built for customers being able to audit um, our training data and really look at, you know, if there is copyrighted information in there, there isn't. I think the companies that really make it in the enterprise have to think uh, about a world where regulation is here, and it's here pretty globally, um, not just in Europe. May, really quickly, what kind of roles are a priority for you to hire? What kind of people do you need? Ed, literally everything. Uh, if you're in tech and you want to work in AI, uh, please email me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we won't ask you to give us your email address on live television, but maybe you can go to your Twitter and social media accounts. We thank you so much, May Habib. Great to have you thank on you so today much. on The Round. Of course, CEO and co-founder of Writer.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in New York City. Caro? Yeah, it's so good to have you here, Ed. Let's have a quick check on these markets. I'm Caroline High. Let's get a quick look at, as we get through midday trading, NASDAQ actually turning a little bit to the higher side. NASDAQ 100 in particular, when in this nervous macro period where we get not only the Federal Reserve come Wednesday, you get the Bank of England on Thursday, the Bank of Japan to round out the week. Where is, well, the pressure point's going to be for some of these central bankers to the upside, it feels like, on the two-year yield. We're up against just about two basis points overall because we're worrying again about whether we pause this time but have to keep on raising. In the fight of inflation that you see prices of oil on the rise, I'm seeing Bitcoin actually, interestingly, managing to shake off some of this anxiety. We're up almost 3%. Ask not the reason why. Many people are saying, look, this is thin liquidity at the moment, but we're above that 27,000 level. Moving on, go to some of the individual movers that are on our minds. Of course, Apple actually managing to make up some of that sell-off come Friday. This is, we see some good mood music coming around the early sales and interest, at least in the iPhone 15 and all of the array. Tesla on the downside, they're off by 2.6%. Some analysts writing that they're concerned about the future earnings potential of this particular company, so keep an eye on some of the analyst notes there today. And Microsoft, this was an interesting one, maybe a bit of a revolving door, but ultimately they had a product who, I might add, has been at the business for a very long time, driving the likes of the Surface and indeed Microsoft Windows of late. But Panas Panay will be staying long enough to help replacements, we understand, transition into the role, but after more than decades, having joined since 2004, Panos Panay is leaving Microsoft Ed. Yeah, speaking of departures and returns, it's been a pretty rough year for Meta employees after 20,000 of their teammates were laid off over the past year. But now they're starting to enjoy coming back into the office. One reason is the company has revived a number of popular pre-pandemic perks from branded T-shirts to happy hours. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Asia accounts out of SF for more. And Asia, this is interesting because when you and I reported the rounds of layoffs at the end of last year and beginning of this year, we, we covered how deep and sudden and wide they were and many people were upset. Talk to us about some of the cultural fixes that Meta's bringing back in. Yeah, as you mentioned, around the time of the layoffs, I mean, people were anxious. They were scared that they could lose their jobs at any moment. They started to scale back perks, and now those are coming back. So employees I was talking to were saying, happy hours on Thursdays are happening again. Dinner time, which used to be at like 6.30 or 7, is now at 6, and people are super excited about that. The restaurants are opening up again. And even some of the more sort of luxurious perks, like laundry services and haircuts, are, are back. So people are excited that things are actually coming back, and it's definitely boosting spirits. There's enough LaCroix to go around, Asia. What about, though, enough jobs to go around? I, I'm actually, in the detail of your story, people are actually being brought back who had previously been laid off. I talked to, yeah, some employees that had been rehired, and there are other people that are in the process. It's slow, and they have to sort of go through the application process again, but Meta is rehiring. And they said this, too, in the earnings call, right, that they want to hire more people in, in hot areas like AI, especially generative AI. So, yeah, they are slowly starting to, to bring some people back. I think what's so interesting now, Aisha, is we're in a, in a time where we're not really either talking about the metaverse and, and the sort of losses that that unit was going on. We are talking more about the work that Meta's doing in AI, Llama 2, open source. What, what is the latest that signal we're getting out of Meta of what the priority is for Mark Zuckerberg? It's still AI. I mean, they'll tell you on the earnings call that you know the metaverse is, is still a priority, and the company is still putting money there. But it really is AI. Even employees that I've talked to said, like, everyone wants to be on the generative AI teams. That's sort of like the, the hot team that's doing well, that's getting money. So it, even just from where employees are going and what teams they want to be on, you can see that. And then, of course, as you mentioned, they have Code Llama, Llama 1, Llama 2. They're really sort of pushing to be a leader in the AI space. Aisha Counts.
brilliant. We thank you for that story. And meanwhile, Ed, I mean, ultimately, here you are in New York with all your knowledge of really the anxiety that has been in the past yeah. for San Francisco, Silicon Valley more broadly, but Meta, it is notable that they had a long way to work to get back that morale. Yeah, the way it was described to me at the time is like at first they used a scalpel and they were like, okay, let's very clearly work out what we need to do. But the year of efficiency was the priority. So they later chucked out the scalpel and they brought the sledgehammer, uh, which is one way that some executives put it to me. And they realized, well, hold on, we actually need some of these people. Mm -hmm. and it's amazing to see Asia report they're now as individuals being hired back. And at a time where share price is on the rise, that's always yeah. helpful for your moon music as well. But there is still this ongoing concern about really the future of social media, it's bread and butter, the future direction of WhatsApp, of Messenger, but notably of Instagram and of Facebook, the OG, the blue, and how we regulate that going forward, how we make it a safer space. And we want to stick on that particular point because we understand that more than 100 parents of transgender kids have signed an open letter urging the US Senate to oppose the Kids Online Safety Act, or COSO as it's known. The legislation aims to make the internet safer for kids, but look, some LGBTQ advocates are raising some concerns against particularly Senator Marshall Blackburn's legislation that could give new power to state attorneys general to dictate what children can access online. And perhaps that cuts trans children off from what the parents are saying as life-saving online resources and community. Let's bring in someone who's trying to find the nuance within all of this. Frank McCourt Jr. is a founder of Project Liberty Action Network and Project Liberty, an organization which strives to address the harms of social media and technology on society, and especially for children. You've been a proponent of the kids' online safety, but at the heart of it, Frank, you're someone who wants technology to be the answer here. Can technology, when we talk about AI and the folks, ever solve for the nuance, for the ability to get this very difficult context satisfied? Yeah, I think it can. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you mentioned AI because all this is, you know, moving very quickly now, right? And we, I think, need to to really focus on the infrastructure. And and I'm a a builder at heart, right? I'm a, from a family of fi I'm a fifth generation builder. 130 years we've been building large infrastructure projects. And when we look at the design, the current design of big tech, and in uh, in particular, how social media platforms are, are are being used and being brought forward, we have a design problem and an infrastructure problem. And fortunately, now we have the technology to actually fix it. Right? We can we can provide a digital identity. We can provide ownership and data control to individuals. We can actually share value within individuals. So I think we need to fix the tech to fix the problem, but fixing the tech alone won't solve it. But the that's the thing, Frank, that, that you just heard Kara and I talking there to Asia about what Meta is working on. It's good at artificial intelligence, the cutting edge of foundation models. From a regulatory perspective, their position was always that we don't know who should have oversight we just don't think we should do it ourselves. But why do we not talk more about them finding technological fixes for their own, the problems on their own platforms? Because they don't want to fix it. Because these big platforms have our data. They, they aggregate it and they exploit it and, and, and monetize it. And we need a new design for the technology where individuals own and control their data. You mentioned regulation. I think regulation is part of it, but it's not going to solve the entire problem. And the, the, for me, what's very interesting about this COSA, uh, it, it, you know, the Kids Online Safety Act, is we've seen the level of concern parents have with the current tech architecture. We know it's broken. COSA is an effort in in the right direction, right? To let big tech know we're not going to we're not going to live with this any longer. We're going to we're going to fix it. So, I think it's not the be all end all, but it's a step in the right direction.
so what is the technological fix? Is it algorithmic? Is it, you know, I've asked that question to the companies many times over the years and I'm yet to hear a straightforward answer. Yeah, because they don't want to give you an answer because... But what is your answer, Frank? Uh, return ownership and control of data to the individual. Blockchain. Using blockchain, but it's not a... I, think about it first at the infrastructure level. I mentioned that. We're in the third generation of the internet now. The first generation was enabled by a protocol called TCP IP. Mm -hmm. The second generation by a protocol, HTTP. We need a third generation of the internet now, enabled by another protocol. We would suggest it's DSNP, a decentralized social networking protocol, which enables people, individuals, to own and control their data. And by deploying blockchain, derive value from that data. We, of course, um, come into this conversation talking about meta. But firstly, I want to push back at that. I think a lot of people who work at the company do want to see a fix. They never built this because they thought this would be a net negative to uh, in any way. They want to be able to try and ensure that kids aren't in any way exposed to harmful content. But also, there's this conversation that this isn't just about US companies and US regulations. This is about Chinese players, for example, and TikTok, of course, owned by ByteDance. I just want you to take a listen to what Mike Pence had to say about the regulation of TikTok. We ought to be banning TikTok. TikTok is a platform of the communist Chinese government. They're collecting data on Americans every single day. What young Americans deserve to know is that their privacy is being compromised with participation in the TikTok platform. Does self-regulation, technological regulation, or indeed, in the end, regulation coming from the US ever solve for international players at this point? Well, I think, I think this, the TikTok example is a good one, right? Um, autocratic technology is awesome if you're an autocracy. So uh, autocratic technology is going to work very, very well for China. But uh, I would argue that you can't have a democracy with autocratic technology. In this circumstance, right, the proposal from TikTok and Oracle was a technological mm -hmm. solution. How's the data in a US data center with, with you know, oversight from the US government not have any data locally housed in China? Why was that, to your mind, Frank, not a, an... Uh, or was it, to your mind, a, a good enough solution? I, no, it's not a good enough solution. I think we're playing around the edges. It's, it's uh, you know, Buckminster Fuller uh, had a great saying, and I'm going to paraphrase it. When the model is so broken, don't waste your time trying to fix it. Build a new model and make the old one obsolete. That's where we're at right now. 20, 30 years ago, there wasn't the ability to store data in a decentralized way. So we needed these large, centralized server farms gathering up this data. And, and you're right, Caroline, I don't think people went out of their way thinking that they were going to do something, you know, most of the employees from Meta or these other companies do something bad with all this data. But just look at where we are now. Just look at where we are, right? Kids, anxious, depressed, attempting to kill themselves or killing themselves. Our society, generally, we, we can't have conversations anymore, highly polarized. Our democracy, struggling to survive. And I would argue even our economy is going to struggle if the bulk of the, of the, of the value resides in five or six right. platforms. There's, there's a moment here where we can change all this, and, and we need to. It does not have to be this way. Frank, can I ask a personal question as to why you're doing this? You are a father of six, and I'm sure they're grown, but uh, to a large extent. But you know, you built, you go back from a 19th-century business that was built. You say you were builders. Why turn your attention here? Why be so galvanised, so focused on this particular part of infrastructure, even though it's not bricks and mortar? Well, it started a decade ago when we started a, a, with Georgetown a Public Policy School in Washington D.C., brand new school. 
uh, and thought that maybe we could contribute in, in that way. Learn very quickly. Uh, and by the way, inside this, the public policy school was something we call the Massive Data Institute. We learned very quickly that the data that these policymakers need is not available to them. It's in these large platforms. So that's when we began to use our skills as builders, as in infrastructure specialists, to look at the design of the technology and came to just a very simple conclusion. Why is our data being scraped and aggregated by a few platforms. It just doesn't feel correct to me. We, we should own our digital DNA. This is our digital, this is our lived life. This is, there's no separation between now your biological identity and your digital identity. Somehow we've let them be separated, but the fact of the matter, they're one and the same. And, and by the way, there's a lot of value to be derived from this data. So there's a lot of companies that are gonna be built and innovation that's gonna occur. I think we should lean into innovation and of course regulate things to buy the time, but this is not a regulatory fix ultimately. This is, this is going to be a, a tech fix for a tech problem and then and this time, let's get it right by optimizing for the right things, the things that are good for kids, good for society, good for democracy. Frank McCourt, Jr., founder of the Project Liberty Action Network. Just a terrific conversation here. And actually, it's good to be out here on the West Coast in New York City. But up next, we're going to discuss the health of the Boston startup ecosystem. That's with Lily Lyman from Underscore VC in our VC Spotlight segment coming up next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. It is good to be on the East Coast. I know where I am, New York City, reunited with Caro. But on today's VC Spotlight, we're going to be taking a look at the Boston startup ecosystem in full swing. And who better to talk to about that than Lily Lyman, general partner at Underscore VC, early stage VC firm based in Boston, $246 million in assets. And I want to go straight to Clavio, you know, potentially yeah. a big IPO, a tech company from your neck of the woods this week. How excited does that get people in your community in Boston? 
Yeah, well, Ed, thanks for thanks for having me. You know, we're very excited for the Clavio IPO, and I think it's it, in part because it's the type of company that gets built here in Boston. It's a great team. It's a huge market. They've been very capital efficient in how they've built, and I think that's reflected in the ownership of Andrew at moment of IPO will be over a third of the company. And so I think overall, it's just the type of uh, type of business that's built here in Boston. I think to note, you know, there's also not a lot of puffery around it. Uh, mm -hmm. They've just done a good job building, and I think. They, uh, they've earned the right to, uh, to have success this week. And maybe not that much puffery, as you say, because it's B2B, ultimately. It's not B2C, so the retail investor isn't that aware of it. But this is your sweet spot. You are a B2B investor largely. And how much is Boston the ecosystem for that, particularly as we start to see the world shift towards AI? And, well, San Francisco seems to be sucking a lot of the oxygen there. Yeah. So as you mentioned, we are B2B and vertical SaaS investors. And I think, you know, Boston's typically known for its biotech and healthcare. But what we see is that there are a variety of sectors that are thriving here in the B2B space, whether it's commerce with companies like Salsify or InsureTech with companies like HiMarley, uh, also areas like supply chain logistics. And then, as you mentioned, increasingly in AI and machine learning. And we've had the, the pleasure to back several great companies in that space, a company like TetraScience, which is, you know, Snow like for scientific data. You know, I think in part what makes this ecosystem unique is the universities that we have yeah. in our backyard yeah. and a lot of the leading edge technology and also talent coming out of those ecosystems consistently fuels what is now powering the AI and machine learning um, revolution that we're seeing across the board. So, you know, we continue to expect to see a lot of great both tech and talent uh, coming through this, this ecosystem here and fueling a lot of what people are excited about. When you're an LP in the Harvard Fund and in the MIT Fund, how are you seeing a desire to build in what is a pretty unstable economic environment? There was meant to be the silver lining that as we had job layoffs, they would go out and build things. Is that happening, mm -hmm. even coming out of the universities at the moment? Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, we're we are investors in some of the on-campus funds. So Harvard's Alston Fund, MIT Sandbox Fund, and the Dorm Room Fund. And what that partnership allows us to see is the most exceptional entrepreneurs coming out of those ecosystems as soon as they graduate. Um, and we're seeing a lot of, of, of thriving ideas and opportunities. Over 26% of our portfolio actually comes from that ecosystem. And um, you know, I think in part that's because you know people continue to see opportunities. Yes, this market is difficult, but one of the things that we're excited about is the caliber of founders. I think you have to be bold and you have to have grit to found companies in this in this market, and we're continuing to see that. Actually, PitchBook recently did a study that showed the number of founders and the amount of capital that they've raised. And if you look at Harvard and MIT graduate programs um, compared to that of Stanford and Berkeley, it's actually higher here in Boston. Another way to think about that is at any given moment, there's between one and four founders of future unicorn companies walking around campus and walking around uh, the halls here in, in the Boston ecosystem. So we're certainly seeing uh, that entrepreneurial spirit continue to be uh, to be thriving, and um, it's one of the areas we're most excited to invest in. That, that is an interesting data point. And, you know, this, the story that, that we hear all the time in San Francisco, I'm, I'm in New York this week, but in San Francisco, is, I went to Stanford, I studied computer science, and I dropped out, and I started a company. I did it in San Francisco because despite the problem, San Francisco is a, a great place to live and work. If you were going to pitch Boston, what is it that's keeping those founders in the city where they either studied or raised their money from? 
Yeah, there's a lot to this ecosystem to like. You know, there's access to world-class talent, both coming out of the university systems, but also coming out of some of these homegrown tech giants that I mentioned, like the HubSpots, Toast, Clavio, Salsifies. Um, and some of the big uh, tech giants from the West Coast have big offices here. So there's no shortage of, of great talent. And then, as I said, you know, it's hard to find anywhere else in the world that has as much R&D coming out of the, the labs and the ecosystems here. So overall, I think the combination of those things, plus there's a threat ecosystem of accelerators and incubators and angels and I think it has all the ingredients you need to uh, to be successful one of the things that was interesting is you know Boston was thriving pre-pandemic but I think post-pandemic it's it's accelerated even more and in part is because we learned you know West Coast investors I think learned that they could invest outside of their backyard hmm. so we're actually seeing more later stage investment come into Boston hmm. um, and actually some of these multi-geography firms are, are setting people on the ground here to to cover this ecosystem as a result Good for the companies as you see them to have that later stage funding too. Lily Lyman, great to have some time. General partner at underscore venture capital underscore VC. No, we're not fundamentally worried. We have a very strong business in China that has grown significantly over the last uh, 10 years. And we're continuing to invest in China. Uh, to make sure that we bring the product that the Chinese customers are expecting for us. That was Mercedes-Benz CEO Ulla Kalenius there. After being asked whether he's worried about China's automakers and pricing wars, which are all global threats, legacy automakers here, like Ford, Stellantis, and General Motors, have been focusing on as well. Except that now they also need to contend with another internal challenge, auto workers striking for better wages and working conditions. It's been going viral. Everyone has been talking about it through the weekend in the largest auto worker strike in years. And Caroline, what it comes down to, and what I hear is like, this transition to EV, the Inflation Reduction Act, money, 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 mm. does that money protect the jobs? Will there net-net be the same number of jobs when we all go electric as there are now? It's the same conversation we're having around artificial intelligence exactly. as well. It's ultimately, that technological innovation and investment ends up hurting the worker. Well, does it in this case? What did you... What yeah, did I mean, in the writers and actors strike, the, 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 it's all about their, their copyright, their intellectual property. Mm. The funny thing is, is that no one gives a straight answer on the car side. Doesn't EV need fewer people to build than a combustion engine car? And we're still working that one out, Karen. Oh, meanwhile, plenty to debate. And luckily, we're here for the whole week. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, then. Check out the podcast wherever you get yours on the terminal and other platforms, Apple, Spotify, iHeart. This is Bloomberg Technology. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.